Chapter 33 of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones in Bonita Springs, Florida. Chapter 33 The Legal Decision the time for the session of the Supreme Court had now arrived, and Clayton's cause was to be reconsidered. Judge Clayton felt exceedingly chagrined as the time drew near. Being himself the leading judge of the Supreme Court, the declaration of the bench would necessarily be made known through him. "'It is extremely painful to me,' he said to Mrs. Clayton, to have this case referred to me, for I shall be obliged to reverse the decision. Well, said Mrs. Clayton, Edward must have fortitude to encounter the usual reverses of his profession. He made a gallant defense and received a great deal of admiration, which will not be at all lessened by this. You do not understand me, said Judge Clayton. It is not the coming out in opposition to Edward which principally annoys me. It is the nature of the decision that I am obliged to make, the doctrine that I feel myself forced to announce. And must you then? said Mrs. Clayton. Yes, I must, said Judge Clayton. A judge can only perceive and declare. What I see, I must speak though it go against all my feelings and all my sense of right. "'I don't see, for my part,' said Mrs. Clayton, "'how that decision can possibly be reversed "'without allowing the most monstrous injustice.' "'Such is the case,' said Judge Clayton. "'But I said in my seat not to make laws, nor to alter them, "'but simply to declare what they are. "'However bad the principle declared,' It is not so bad as a proclamation of a falsehood would be. I have sworn truly to declare the laws, and I must keep my oath. Have you talked with Edward about it? Not particularly. He understands in general the manner in which the thing lies in my mind. This conversation took place just before it was time for Judge Clayton to go to his official duties. The courtroom on this occasion was somewhat crowded. Barker, being an active, resolute, and popular man with a certain class, had talked up a considerable excitement with regard to his case. Clayton's friends were interested in it on his account. Lawyers were, for the sake of the principal, so that upon the whole there was a good deal of attention drawn toward this decision. Among the spectators on the morning of the court, Clayton remarked Harry. For reasons which our readers may appreciate, his presence there was a matter of interest to Clayton. He made his way toward him. Harry, he said, how came you here? The ladies, said Harry, thought they would like to know how the thing went, and so I got on my horse and came over. As he spoke, he placed in Clayton's hand a note and as the paper touched his hand, a close spectator might have seen the color rise in his cheek. He made his way back to his place, and opened a law-book which he held up before his face. 
Inside the law book, however, was a little sheet of gilt-edged paper on which were written a few words in pencil, more interesting than all the law in the world. Shall we commit the treason of reading over his shoulder? It was as follows. Quote, you say you may today be called to do something which you think right, but which will lose you many friends, which will destroy your popularity, which may alter all your prospects in life, and you ask if I can love you yet? I say in answer that it was not your friends that I loved, nor your popularity, nor your prospects, but you. I can love and honor a man who is not afraid nor ashamed to do what he thinks to be right, and therefore I hope ever to remain yours, Nina. P.S. I only got your letter this morning, and have but just time to scribble this and send by Harry. We are all well, and shall be glad to see you as soon as the case is over. Close quote. Clayton, my boy, you are very busy with your authorities, said Frank Russell behind him. Clayton hastily hid the paper in his hand. It's charming, said Russell, to have little manuscript annotations on law. It lights it up like the illuminations in old missiles. But say, Clayton, you live at the Fountainhead. How is the case going? Against me, said Clayton. Well, it's no great odds after all. You have had your triumph. These afterthoughts cannot take away that. But hush, there's your father going to speak. Every eye in the courtroom was turned upon Judge Clayton, who was standing with his usual self-poised composure of manner. In a clear, deliberate voice, he spoke as follows. A judge cannot but lament when such cases as the present are brought into judgment. It is impossible that the reasons on which they go can be appreciated, but where institutions similar to our own exist and are thoroughly understood. The struggle, too, in the judge's own breast between the feelings of the man and the duty of the magistrate is a severe one, presenting strong temptation to put aside such questions if it be possible. It is useless, however, to complain of things inherent in our political state, and it is criminal in a court to avoid any responsibility which the laws impose. With whatever reluctance, therefore, it is done. The court is compelled to express an opinion upon the extent of the dominion of the master over the slave in North Carolina. The indictment charges a battery on Milly, a slave of Louisa Nesbitt. The inquiry here is whether a cruel and unreasonable battery on a slave by the hirer is indictable. The judge below instructed the jury that it is. He seems to have put it on the ground that the defendant had but a special property. Our laws uniformly treat the master or other person having the possession and command of the slave as entitled to the same extent of authority. The object is the same, the service of the slave, and the same powers must be confided. In a criminal proceeding, and indeed in reference to all other persons but the general owner, the hirer and possessor of the slave, in relation to both rights and duties, is for the time being 
the owner. But upon the general question, whether the owner is answerable, criminaliter for a battery upon his own slave, or other exercise of authority or force not forbidden by the statute, the court entertains but little doubt. That he is so liable has never been decided, nor, as far as is known, been hitherto contended. There has been no prosecution of the sort. The established habits and uniform practice of the country, in this respect, is the best evidence of the portion of power deemed by the whole community requisite to the preservation of the master's dominion. If we thought differently, we could not set our notions in array against the judgment of everybody else, and say that this or that authority may be safely lopped off. This has indeed been assimilated at the bar to other domestic relations, and arguments drawn from the well-established principles which confer and restrain the authority of the parent over the child, the tutor over the pupil, the master over the apprentice, have been pressed on us. The court does not recognize their application. There is no likeness between the cases. They are in opposition to each other, and there is an impassable gulf between them. The difference is that which exists between freedom and slavery, and a greater cannot be imagined. In the one, the end in view is the happiness of the youth born to equal rights with that governor on whom the duty devolves of training the young to usefulness, in a station which he is afterward to assume among freemen. To such an end, and with such a subject, moral and intellectual instruction seem the natural means, and for the most part they are found to suffice. Moderate force is superadded only to make the others effectual. If that fail, it is better to leave the party to his own headstrong passions and the ultimate correction of the law than to allow it to be immoderately inflicted by a private person. With slavery it is far otherwise. The end is the profit of the master, his security, and the public safety. The subject, one doomed in his own person and his posterity, to live without knowledge and without the capacity to make anything his own, and to toil that another may reap the fruits. What moral considerations shall be addressed to such a being, to convince him what it is impossible, but that the most stupid must feel and know can never be true, that he is thus to labor upon a principle of natural duty, or for the sake of his own personal happiness? Such services can only be expected from one who has no will of his own, who surrenders his will in implicit obedience to that of another. Such obedience is the consequence only of uncontrolled authority over the body. There is nothing else which can operate to produce the effect. The power of the master must be absolute to render the submission of the slave perfect. I most freely confess my sense of the harshness of this proposition. I feel it as deeply as any man can. And as a principle of moral right, every person in his retirement must repudiate it. But in the actual condition of things, it must be so. There is no remedy. This discipline belongs to the state of slavery. They cannot be disunited without abrogating at once the rights of the master, 
and absolving the slave from his subjection. It constitutes the curse of slavery to both the bond and the free portions of our population, but it is inherent in the relation of master to slave. That there may be particular instances of cruelty and deliberate barbarity, where in conscience the law might properly interfere, is most probable. The difficulty is to determine where a court may properly begin. Merely in the abstract, it may well be asked which power of the master accords with right. The answer will probably sweep away all of them, but we cannot look at the matter in that light. The truth is that we are forbidden to enter upon a train of general reasoning on the subject. We cannot allow the right of the master to be brought into discussion in the courts of justice. The slave, to remain a slave, must be made sensible that there is no appeal from his master, that his power is in no instance usurped, but is conferred by the laws of man at least, if not by the law of God. The danger would be great indeed if the tribunals of justice should be called on to graduate the punishment appropriate to every temper and every dereliction of menial duty. No man can anticipate the many and aggravated provocations of the master, which the slave would be constantly stimulated by his own passions, or the instigation of others to give, or the consequent wrath of the master prompting him to bloody vengeance upon the turbulent traitor a vengeance generally practiced with impunity by reason of its privacy. The court, therefore, disclaims the power of changing the relation in which these parts of our people stand to each other. I repeat that I would gladly have avoided this ungrateful question, but being brought to it, the court is compelled to declare that while slavery exists among us in its present state, or until it shall seem fit to the legislature to interpose express enactments to the contrary, it will be the imperative duty of the judges to recognize the full dominion of the owner over the slave, except where the exercise of it is forbidden by statute. And this we do upon the ground that this dominion is essential to the value of slaves as property, to the security of the master and the public tranquillity greatly dependent upon their subordination, and, in fine, as most effectively securing the general protection and comfort of the slaves themselves. Judgment below reversed. The judgment entered for the defendant. During the delivery of the decision, Clayton's eyes by accident became fixed upon Harry, who was standing opposite to him, and who listened through the whole with breathless attention. He observed, as it went on, that his face became pale, his brow clouded, and that a fierce and peculiar expression flashed from his dark blue eye. Never had Clayton so forcibly realized the horrors of slavery as when he heard them thus so calmly defined in the presence of one into whose soul the iron had entered. The tones of Judge Clayton's voice, so passionless, clear, and deliberate, the solemn, calm, unflinching earnestness of his words, were more than a thousand passionate appeals. In the dead silence that followed, Clayton rose, 
and requested permission of the court to be allowed to say a few words in view of the decision. His father looked slightly surprised, and there was a little movement among the judges, but curiosity, perhaps among other reasons, led the court to give consent. Clayton spoke, quote, I hope it will not be considered a disrespect or impertinence for me to say that the law of slavery and the nature of that institution have for the first time been made known to me today in their true character. I had before flattered myself with the hope that it might be considered a guardian institution by which a stronger race might assume the care and instruction of the weaker one, and I had hoped that its laws were capable of being so administered as to protect the defenseless. This illusion is destroyed. I see but too clearly now the purpose and object of the law. I cannot, therefore, as a Christian man, remain in the practice of law in a slave state. I therefore relinquish the profession into which I have just been inducted and retire forever from the bar of my native state. There, there he goes, said Frank Russell. The sticking point has come at last. His conscience is up, and start him now who can. There was a slight motion of surprise in the court and audience, but Judge Clayton sat with unmoved serenity. The words had struck to the depth of his soul. They had struck at the root of one of his strongest hopes in life. But he had listened to them with the same calm and punctilious attention which it was his habit to give to every speaker. And, with unaltered composure, he proceeded to the next business of the court. A step so unusual occasioned no little excitement, but Clayton was not one of the class of people to whom his associates generally felt at liberty to express their opinions of his conduct. The quiet reserve of his manners discouraged any such freedom. As usual, in cases where a person takes an uncommon course from conscientious motives, Clayton was severely criticized. The more trifling among the audience contented themselves with using the good set phrases, quixotic, absurd, ridiculous. The elder lawyers, and those friendly to Clayton, shook their heads and said, rash, precipitate, unadvised. There's a want of ballast about him somewhere, said one. He is unsound, said another. Radical and impractical, added a third. Yes, said Frank Russell, who had just come up, Clayton is as radical and impracticable as the Sermon on the Mount, and that's the most impracticable thing I know of in literature. We all can serve God and mammon. We have discovered that happy medium in our day. Clayton is behind the times. He is Jewish in his notions. Don't you think so, Mr. Titmarsh? Addressing the Reverend Mr. Titmarsh. It strikes me that our young friend is extremely ultra said Mr. Titmarsh. I might feel disposed to sympathize with him in the feelings he expressed, to some extent, but it having pleased the divine providence to establish the institution of slavery, I humbly presume it is not competent for human reason to judge of it. And if it had pleased the divine providence to have established the institution of piracy, you'd say the same thing, I suppose, said Frank Russell. 
"'Certainly, my young friend,' said Mr. Titmarsh, "'whatever is defiantly ordered becomes right by that fact.' "'I should think,' said Frank Russell, "'that things were divinely ordered because they were right.' "'No, my friend,' replied Mr. Titmarsh moderately, "'they are right because they are ordered, "'however contrary they may appear "'to any of our poor notions of justice and humanity.' "'And Mr. Titmarsh walked off. "'Did you hear that?' said Russell. "'And they expect really to come it over us "'with stuff like that.' Now, if a fellow don't go to church Sundays, there's a dreadful outcry against him for not being religious. And if they get us there, that's the kind of thing they put down our throats, as if they were going to make practical men give in to such humbugs. And the Reverend Mr. Titmarsh went off in another direction, lamenting to a friend as follows, quote, how mournfully infidelity is increasing among the young men of our day. They quote scripture with the same freedom that they would a book of plays and seem to treat it with no more reverence. I believe it's the want of catechetical instruction while they are children. There's been a great falling back in the teaching of the assembly's catechism to children when they are young. I shall get that point up at the General Assembly. If that were thoroughly committed when they are children, I think they would never doubt afterwards. Clayton went home and told his mother what he had done and why. His father had not spoken to him on the subject, and there was that about Judge Clayton which made it difficult to introduce a topic unless he signified an inclination to enter upon it. He was, as usual, calm, grave, and considerate, attending to every duty with unwearying regularity. At the end of the second day, in the evening, Judge Clayton requested his son to walk into his study. The interview was painful for both sides. "'You are aware, my son,' he said, "'that the step you have taken is a very painful one to me.' I hope that it was not taken precipitately from any sudden impulse. You may rest assured it was not, said Clayton. I followed the deepest and most deliberate convictions of my conscience. In that case you could not do otherwise, replied Judge Clayton. I have no criticism to make. But will your conscience allow you to retain the position of a slaveholder? I have already relinquished it replied Clayton, so far as my own intentions are concerned. I retain the legal relation of owner simply as a means of protecting my servants from the cruelties of the law and of securing the opportunity to educate and elevate them. And suppose this course brings you into conflict with the laws of the state, said Judge Clayton. If there is any reasonable prospect of having the law altered, I must endeavor to do that, said Clayton. But, said Judge Clayton, suppose the law is so rooted in the nature of the institution that it cannot be repealed without uprooting the institution. What then? I say repeal the law if it do uproot the institution, said Clayton. Fiat justita ruat colium. I suppose that would be your answer said Judge Clayton, patiently. That is undoubtedly the logical line of life. 
but you are aware that communities do not follow such lines. Your course, therefore, will place you in opposition to the community in which you live. Your conscientious convictions will cross self-interest, and the community will not allow you to carry them out. Then, said Clayton, I must, with myself and my servants, remove to some region where I can do this. That, I supposed, would be the result, said Judge Clayton, and have you looked at the thing in all its relations and consequences? I have, said Clayton. You are about to form a connection with Miss Gordon, said Judge Clayton. Have you considered how this will affect her? Yes, said Clayton. Miss Gordon fully sustains me in the course I have taken. I have no more to say, said Judge Clayton. Every man must act up to his sense of duty. There was a pause of a few moments, and Judge Clayton added, You perhaps have seen the implication which your course throws upon us, who still continue to practice the system and uphold the institution which you repudiate. I meant no implications, said Clayton. I presume not, but they result logically from your course, said his father. I assure you I have often myself pondered the question with reference to my own duties. My course is sufficient evidence that I have not come to the same result. Human law is, at best, but an approximation, a reflection of many of the ills of our nature. Imperfect as it is, it is, on the whole, a blessing. The worst system is better than anarchy. But, my father, why could you not have been a reformer of the system? My son, no reform is possible unless we are prepared to give up the institution of slavery. That will be the immediate result, and this is so realized by the instinct of self-preservation, which is unfailing in its accuracy, that every such proposition will be ignored till there is a settled conviction in the community that the institution itself is a moral evil, and a sincere determination felt to be free from it. I see no tendency of things in that direction. That body of religious men of different denominations called, par excellence, the church exhibit a degree of moral apathy on this subject, which is to me very surprising. It is with them that the training of the community, on which any such reform could be built, must commence, and I see no symptoms of their undertaking it. The decisions and testimonies of the great religious assemblies in the land, in my youth, were frequent. They have grown every year less and less decided, and now the morality of the thing is openly defended in our pulpits, to my great disgust. I see no way but that the institution will be left to work itself out to its final result, which will, in the end, be ruinous to our country. I am not gifted myself with the talents of a reformer. My turn of mind fits me for the situation I hold. I cannot hope that I have done no harm in it, but the good, I hope, will outweigh the evil. If you feel a call to enter this course, fully understanding the difficulties and sacrifices it would probably involve, I would be the last one to throw the influence of my private wishes and feelings into the scale. 
we live here but a few years. It is of more consequence that we should do right than that we should enjoy ourselves. Judge Clayton spoke this with more emotion than he usually exhibited, and Clayton was much touched. My dear father, he said, putting Nina's note into his hand, you made allusion to Miss Gordon. This note, which I received from her on the morning of your decision, will show you what her spirit is. Judge Clayton put on his spectacles and read over the note deliberately twice. He then handed it formally to his son and remarked with his usual brevity, She'll do! End of chapter 33 The Legal Decision